From the Rose City in beautiful downtown Portland, Oregon, home of bikes, books, bridges, beards, food carts, startups, and indie coffee. Grab your dog, snatch your hammer and beer, leave your umbrella at home. Welcome to the Tiny House Podcast. Oh yeah, we start off with a as, as coordinated of a clap as we can get, and... It's Tiny House Podcast. I'm Perry. I'm Michelle. And this is Mark Grimes. And today we have a fantastic guest for you all, Gary Butte, who is recognized as the, he may not acknowledge this, the safety guru of the Tiny House movement. Gary, welcome. Welcome. Hey. Hey, thanks for having me on your podcast, you guys. It's a pleasure to be here. I hope we can find some other things to talk about with the Tiny House because a lot of people view this uh, safety shit as just really boring. <laughs> I talk about it on the Facebook groups and at the Jamboree, but it's really boring stuff. I mean, who doesn't like to see a house explode with the people killed because of a, a gas buildup? Wow. Is that, the, is that the tagline of your company, Gary? Fire while the fire people are still there and you're assisting the disaster recovery teams in getting power on to extract the water out of their house, and I was the electrical contractor doing that. I mean, how much fun could you have? Okay, let's go pump some septic tanks, maybe, but we'll do some safety conversations. Wait a second now. Was that story about the the tiny house on fire, was that a real story? No, that's a real story, but it wasn't a tiny house. Oh, okay. Yeah, I've been on projects with disaster recovery teams, and been there when the fire department's still mopping up. And my project was the electrical contractor was to work with the power suppliers and make sure that there was power there to start running the dehumidification equipment. Got it. Right, right. Um, I've also arrived at homes where the family was in the car in front of their burned-up house, every one of them in tears. And I go into the house with the family, the father, and you see the... The uh, stove where the pots and pans were that didn't burn up, and you go in the kids' bedrooms and you see the smoke damage. And then I'm on Facebook and I see the pictures of tiny houses, and it's all I can do not to reply back in a very... I'm an old construction worker, you guys, so bear with me. I I can get aggressive, and I want to say, put a smoke detector, or I want to write... Wow, how did you conceal your smoke detector? I'd like to know where to buy those because I think the tiny house people would like them. So it, it kind of freaks me out. And I, I suppose there's people out there that would think I'm a nose-it-all when it comes to safety. I'm not. I have other people that work with me on keeping tiny houses safe. So... The smoke detector. Do you guys have one? Well, it's funny that you mentioned that because the well, we we don't. <laughs> Here, go, he doesn't answer. It. <laughs> <laughs> it's, 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 He's deflecting. It, it seems like if the, in a tiny house, if by the time the smoke detector is off, the house or the smoke detector goes off, the house is already engulfed in flames. Well, we're in a, so, we're in a room that's about the size of a tiny house, maybe slightly smaller. But if there was smoke or fire in here, I would notice exactly. it like, pretty much right away. Right. Okay, so I'll answer that question. I not only have a smoke, I have one of the combo detectors. So I have the smoke detector and the CO2 detectors. You got a bullshit detector too, right? (laughs) (laughs) I have to sit in this room. (laughs) 
Shay, <laughs> motherfucker. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, and I and I have a, I actually have a glamper. I have a glamorous camper that is so small, actually, um, that I couldn't put a CO2 detector in it because I couldn't get it. I couldn't, you know, mount it any place according to the instructions. It has to be a minimum of so oh, many from feet, from and, and, wow. and it was actually so small. That I, that I couldn't uh, utilize one in that space. But huh. yes, Terry, uh, excuse me, Gary is my is my safety voice in my head. I actually do have a question, a real like a real life question for you when, when we get to that point. So I thought you were going to say that you couldn't put the carbon dioxide detector inside your glamper because it was so small it would detect the carbon dioxide coming out of your mouth. Uh, and breathe. <laughs> so I thought it was because it wasn't glamorous enough to be. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. That just isn't oh controlled enough. Gosh. <laughs> sorry. Oh, that's right. Oh, Somebody's on the phone. Oh, we have oh, a guest. So, so Gary, what else would be interesting to talk about besides tiny house safety? Oh, I don't know. We can find some fun ways. So, Gary, where do you stand on the nail versus screw debate? Oh, you know, I think the screws are much better. But if you use a nail, that's great, too. When I speak with our structural engineer regarding the way these tiny houses are built, they are telling me that they're overbuilt by two and a half times the quality. If you take a look at an RV and one that's been cross-sectioned because it's had an accident, and you look at the thin walls and the very small structural sheeting of them, and I don't know if you've pulled your glamper at 80 miles an hour, but I've driven my RV at 80 miles an hour, and it's still intact today. So if you use a nail, a screw, a bracket, a Simpson Strong Tie product to hold it to the trailer, you're really overbuilding it beyond. And there's a, a terminology in the construction trades. I got my first electrical license in 1974, so do the math. <laughs> anyway, um, there's a, a phrase in the construction industry that says it's professionally built or it's homeowner built. And when we see a homeowner built project, eight times out of ten, it's probably overbuilt or they did it too good because they read so many things on how to do it, they tried to employ every technique into their home because they're going to live in it. Gary, what's the problem with overbuilding something? Seems um, like... Go ahead. Okay, so it does seem like a good idea. Yeah. You're right. But if you're adding weight to your trailer or increasing the center of gravity on your roof height because you're overbuilding, then that doesn't serve you well from a safety aspect. In oh. my opinion. Okay, mine's overbuilt. Next. <laughs> <laughs> so, so the so okay. So, uh, not to get too geeky here, but if you're so a difference between a nail and a screw or a Simpsons bracket, whatever the hell that is, makes yeah. that much of a difference. On the weight, yeah. yeah, the nail and screw weigh about the same. Um, it boils down to then the speed of building the tiny house. If you're going to drill every screw in or if you're going to show up to the site and you're going to assemble a 14-foot wall in an hour and a half with a nail gun. But what about the shear factor? That, I mean, that, I, so I did a both, right? So I did, you know, I mean, I used a typical construction nail gun um, for part of it and then I used screws, you know, screw and... Glue and glue. 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 Glue
It's a screw made out of glue. <laughs> I did right. glue, glue and screw for the sheathing. And yes. I did nail construction. So what about the, I mean, that's really where I think the nail versus screw debate comes apart. Oh. Um, is, is the sheer strength. Um, of course, the, the screws don't have that unless you buy, you know, ones that are specifically designed for it. That's correct. Screws and nails all have a different shear strength, and that's where you really have to have an engineer to comment and to recommend that. Any way you stack it, when you take a look at a tiny house on a trailer as a load and you talk to a structural engineer and you have them look at the screw patterns that you're using on your sheeting, the people that are building these right now are using more screws or nails or glue Correct. than is necessary. Yeah, yeah, so, that, that makes sense. So what is the what is the uh, minimum structurally sound number of screws, for example, or is there a screw pattern that you would recommend that people be following, and are they saving money when they do that? I'm not sure they're going to save money, but they might save they're going to save a little bit of money because if you put less screws in there, you're not adding as much weight. Right. It's steel cost. In my opinion, the way they build the tiny houses with advanced framing where the studs are 24 inches on center reduces the weight. It gives you more ability to put insulation in your house um, for a higher R factors for less thermal transferization. So... That's how I would do it. So, I don't so, think the screws or the nails are going to make any difference whatsoever. Got it. So instead of 24 on center, what are people building? 16. So 16. Mine's, yeah. Again, let me say again. Mine's overbelt. Okay. So mine is 16 on center. I, mine was built by a, um, a, a residential framer, you know, a guy that just builds house 16 on center. And I guess you would call the old school framing methodology, not the new framing Methodology, um, yeah. So mine's overbuilt too. You guys have said there's math in this episode. I'd have done some more studying. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So bear in mind, Michelle, when you say old school and you refer to 16 inches on center, that's really the advanced method. Are you guys still there? Yeah. yeah we're oh, good. You're so quiet. You're hinging on my every word. Wow. Either that or we were okay. sleeping. <laughs> there you go. That's probably it. <laughs> Advanced framing, 24 inches on center, has been utilized since the 20s during the Depression. Oh, oh okay. okay. So, so for, the re- for the listeners, I almost said readers, for the listeners who don't know construction methods, Gary, would you please yeah. explain what you mean when you say 24 on center? Okay, so when you have a row of studs, which are the vertical pieces of lumber. I thought that was a hot man. (laughs) (laughs) A row of them. Oh, my God. (laughs) Again, we're in Portland. Okay, keep going. Sorry. Sorry. Wow. Wow. (laughs) Okay, so um, once you put these studs, these vertical pieces of lumber that are two by fours, which are really inch and a half by three and a half, vertically, the layout from where you start at the end going towards the left or right is every 16 inches or every 24 inches. And the reason that's done is because 16 inches is a a multiplier of the 24-inch 
uh, space, which is also the four by eight sheeting, which is what all plywood comes in. So if you choose 24 inches or 16 inches on center, the plywood, which is eight feet or four feet in its dimensions, will lay out onto those studs or onto the floor joists that way. Got it. Okay. So thanks for doing that for our listeners. So can we talk sure. about headers for a minute? Because I, my, by the way, mine is overbuilt. Did I mention that already? Um, oh, so, I so, noticed that even. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's over the top. I do have a header story. I won't bo- I won't bore everybody with it. Um, I accidentally, you know, ended up with headers that were too beefy. Can we talk a little bit about window headers and fender headers? Um, I've noticed some people that are building um, tiny houses with no fender headers. Uh, Good idea or disaster in the making? Well, it's... Go ahead. That That was was a question. question. (laughs) I got it. Hey, I've seen those too. And I think the way that those houses are going to get through their life is because they have the plywood on the outside, probably with another layer of some other type of sheeting um, that has some structure to it. Then they've got plywood on the inside. Plywood has a lot more structural quality to it than sheetrock, and that sheet, that interior plywood, exterior plywood, along with all the nails and screws and glue that they put on there, it will probably make up for the loss of the header. That's interesting. So, are you? Are we then assuming that their that their loft um, doesn't extend over the fender? Um, are we assuming that there's no additional uh, vertical strength required except for that of the the roof and the wall? Well, that would be the assumption based on that reply that I just gave. However, if the loft was bearing on those studs that are bearing on a flat bottom plate over the fender with no header, yes, that weight would carry through. Okay, okay. That's why it's important if, if you're building with advanced or the 24 inches on center method, that you have your ceiling rafters, those roof, they're not called studs anymore, sorry guys, but those (laughs) roof rafters need to bear on top of the studs going down to the bottom plate so that the load carries through. Whereas on the 16 inches on center, traditionally they put a double 2x4 on the top so you have a double top plate. And then you don't have to be as critical as where your rafters are positioned on that top plate. Right. Yeah. I like I said, I um, I did both, um, but I I also have a trailer that is that is uh, I have a triple axle, so I'm not too worried about the additional weight that I created. I'm a little worried, but I'm not too worried. So, uh, but yeah, um, that's. I added some pretty beefy headers. Um. Oh, Michelle, I've seen your headers, baby, and they are big. <laughs> wow, it's our turn. Yeah. Wow, <laughs> they are they are beefy, like you say, baby. <laughs> okay. Well, yeah, man. man. Oh, come on. Now I have Getting to tell, steamy in here. Now I have to tell my header story. Now I have to tell my header story. So I had my whole lumber package delivered. We're all ready to go. The framer says, "Where's your headers?" Um, mm-hmm. says, where's your headers? I'm like, headers? What headers? He's like, you forgot the headers. I'm like, you didn't tell me to buy them. So we were kind of, you know, rushing around. And as you know, especially glue lamp headers um, are not exactly, you know, easy to find and they have long lead times. So a local lumber yard um, actually had some extras. Um, they charged me next to nothing. They delivered them for free and crisis averted. But that, So that's how I ended up with uh, 
beefy headers. Yeah. really big. I thought you got them from your mom. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so, so Gary, has anyone, have you, you're, you're the safety guru of this community. Has anyone ever died in their tiny house? Not that I know of, have but people have died in RVs before. How did they die in their RV? Burned up. Yeah. Or asphyxiated by carbon monoxide. Oh, and that's what, that's your concern about these people building their tiny houses without smoke detectors? Yes, sir. They build them so airtight because they're trying to be so environmentally conscious because they're minimalists, which I am proud to be one of those people. But they're they're creating possibly stale air inside there. So I also recommend people have a a propane gas detector and that that be mounted down uh, near the floor. Uh, two inches above the floor. Propane gas is heavier than air, Mm -hmm. so it settles to the floor. So if you were to accidentally leave a burner on, on your stove, or you bumped into it while you were cleaning it, and propane gas came out, it's going to flow off the top of the range top, down the face of the Mm -hmm. cabinets, and hit the floor. And once it does that, it's going to start building up Mm -hmm. in layers and thicknesses of gas. And if the detector's down there, it's going to sound an alarm, number one. Number two, it could send an electrical signal out to your propane tanks, and there'd be an electrical valve out there that would shut the propane off outside of your tiny house. And number three, there could be another trigger that it would send a message to your cell phone or smart device. Boy, we are providing a public service today. Yes, actually, that was exactly the the question I was going to ask, is whether or not... There is a battery-powered version of that propane tank shut-off valve, right? So oh, the- yeah, absolutely. And that is on the um, safety spreadsheet that I think I sent to you guys. If not, it's on my website. So, so how much are these devices that, that sneak around and smell the propane? With the electrical solenoid valve, it's $259. And then you need to buy a 12-volt battery and a charger for that, which I highly recommend anyway for your uh, 12-volt DC lighting inside your house. But $259, that's 10% of my build budget. (laughs) (laughs) It's a super tiny house. (laughs) Oh, I know. I mean, maybe you're not going to have any propane devices in your house, so you wouldn't need that. Um, if your best friend died because he was consumed or asphyxiated in propane gas or exploded, would that be worth two fifty nine? Absolutely. So it's All so. Right. Quite, so I there's guess, the trade off. Okay, so just find this paperwork here today. Exactly. So yeah. without without the sensor, by the time your nose reads that there's propane leaking, your room is your house is pretty much filled. Oh my gosh! I mean, you won't sense it with your nose for an undetermined amount of time because your nose is at five feet above the floor. Yeah. The propane gas is just building. And it doesn't stink like like regular There gas. is some odor to it. Uh-huh. I've actually done this, you guys. This is another reason. I was in my motorhome. There was probably six to ten of us in there. We were all sitting around. I was leaning up against the gas range. Oh, because people were sitting there, and somehow or another, I moved, or somebody else did it, and the cooktop came on, wow. and eventually the detector sounded. Huh. But we didn't smell it. Mm. Wow, crazy. So yeah. I feel a lot better about hiring a pro then who's coming out next week to install my propane heater and make sure that my propane stove test fires correctly. So 
the installation fee in this particular instance is a good investment? I think so. Another good investment is to uh, put a pressure gauge on your gas pipe and fill it full of air and let it sit there at 60 PSI. Uh, pounds per square inch, Thank you. and let it sit there for 24 to 48 hours, or do it the homeowner method and let it sit there for two weeks <laughs> and leave that pressure on that gas line to verify that you don't have a leak. Right. Yeah, I did that. I had my propane lines professionally installed, and that's exactly what they did. But I was a little nervous, though, because after that period of time, it said zero. So if you pump air into a closed system... And then you pump it to 60 PSI, and then after two weeks, if it reads zero, doesn't that mean that there's a leak in the line? Yes, Michelle, you're correct. That is, that's exactly what it is. When, when the pressure's put in there initially, what you need to do is take a, a spray bottle and put some detergent in it so that when you spray it on a, a pipe fitting, if there's a leak, it will form soap bubbles mm -hmm. so and you don't, every, you don't recommend the stuff that they sell at the uh the big box stores that does that is there any advantage to to that product versus a homemade soap solution uh it will reduce the amount of money in your wallet <laughs> <laughs> hey, if that's we're, an advantage to you then here. we've won <laughs> safety's becoming fun uh, there is no advantage michelle i okay. don't mean to spoof on that but there's Every professional plumber out there or mechanical contractor is just using soap and water mm -hmm. unless they've been sold that by a, a, a distributor that says this is better than soap and water because this, this, and this. Mm -hmm. All the fittings need to be accessible too. That propane pipe is installed underneath the frame of your trailer and when it comes through the floor, there's no fittings so that every fitting you can spray the soapy water or the product you buy at the big box stores yep. on there to check for leaks. Yep, that's correct. Absolutely. Um, yeah. So when I was reading your website, um, preparing for this interview, my my initial thought uh, was, you know, the, the there's a lot of people out here building their tiny houses, and they may not know about this stuff. And it sounds like that this is pretty actually serious business that we're talking about, this safety stuff. Well, yeah, especially when you get to that propane gas and... Again, I spend a lot of time on Facebook um, between designs, and I see people who are professional builders whose names you would recognize that I have seen, this has been several years ago, they've corrected it, that had propane tanks that didn't have vents in their projects. Wow. So in other words, if the propane tank were to leak where you screw it on and off like your barbecue and you've got it sealed inside a container, that gas is going to build up in there. The ANSI code specifies the number of square inches of ventilation at the very extreme bottom of the enclosure and how many square inches at the top to allow outside air that is non-combustible to flow through that enclosure to go down to the ground so it hits the earth and it dissipates over a hundredth of an inch thickness over the ground. Well, you know your shit, don't you? I, <laughs> it, it seems like this is why so many local governments don't have anything written around tiny houses. Yeah. And that, again, there are so many people building them because they're neat that don't have any idea about safety issues regarding this. Uh, and I assume weight is also a safety issue. And it seems like anybody we've talked to, they have no idea of the weight of their home. So it's just a total finger crossed that if they do need to tow it somewhere, it's just going to collapse or fall over or anything like that. Well, what we do when 
Um, um, I suppose everybody knows I own a business because you said I have a website. We have an actual spreadsheet that calculates every screw and nail based on historical data. We know the, how much a piece of wire weighs, a two-by-four, a piece of plywood, the roofing. And we put that all into a spreadsheet because before the construction starts is when you want to know if your trailer is going to hold the load. Right. Yeah. Right. Not after it's built like we see on Facebook. Well, today I'm changing the axles and wheels on my trailer. Uh, yeah, that's Because really it's too heavy? Yeah. Yeah. So Tell me how much fun that would be laying underneath your trailer uh, that you can't lift up except just a few feet off the ground at right. that and changing your axles. Yeah. So how many, how many clients do you have, Gary? They come and go. They come in here and we design their house and then they move on. And then there's ones that send us their information about their projects as they're going, as you see on our projects tab on the page. We started this business... I started this business with Alec Leafsky, who built his tiny house in Iowa and then moved it out to California. And that's the website tiny-project. And Alec and B.A. and Jay Schaefer are all really big uh, tiny house advocates, and that's the first house I designed. And I was fortunate enough to meet Alec and Michelle yeah. at the tiny house Jamboree last August. It was like meeting friends that you hadn't seen in so long, but you were already such good friends. When I walked up to the bar and there was Michelle sitting at the bar. With her heavy, what do they call them? Headers. Headers. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I was so happy to see a friendly face. And oh, to give great. you a hug, darling, it was just fabulous. That's we that really enjoyed fun. that. That was fun. Have you recovered yet? That was like epic. Have you recovered? It took us till the end of August or a little bit more to recover because we had projects kind of stacking up during that two-week period. And then we've recovered and we've moved on to other things. So, uh, yeah. Awesome. Fun times. So getting back to the weight issue and the weight calculation, again, uh, mine, so you, you wouldn't advise the build and pray method that I have, <laughs> that I have adopted? You know, there's two ways to to learn safety, and that's either after the accident or before the accident. There's two ways to build. You can plan ahead and make sure that when you're installing something, something else that isn't in the way, or that the trailer will turn behind the truck you're towing it. <laughs> you haven't built too much on the tongue of the trailer, or it's not balanced. There's a lot of ways that planning can save you time and money. Sure. You've been reading my Facebook page. That is no fair. No, actually, I'm, I'm giving. I'm not giving myself quite enough credit, but uh, but there is a certain amount of uncertainty involved in in designing right. my own house. So, um, what would you tell people that want to design their own home? What are the advantages and disadvantages of designing your own home as opposed to buying a floor plan? You want to talk about that? Sure. Um, the advantage to buying a floor plan from one of the reputable companies out there is that that house has already been built. And so you know that those inherent problems have been discovered and the plans have been updated. And that's where the reputable builder comes in. So you've got a benchmark to know that once that house is built, it's going to weigh 8,000, 10,000, 15,000 pounds 
and so you know the trailer is going to work for it. The advantage to drawing your own plans is you get it, the design exactly the way you want it. If you want two lofts or three lofts or whatever inside your tiny house, maybe you want the bedroom in the back or and the kitchen in the middle, or it, where's the door? You can pick that out. We receive in plans from other builders and people have bought maybe five sets of plans from all the plan sellers, and they've got a couple thousand dollars invested in plans, and they say, now, we want you to look at all these and change them to make them the way they're going to be for us. <laughs> the better way is just to start with your own sketch and then turn them over to uh, a tiny house designer. I'm not the only one out there that helps people with their floor plans, and occasionally we do structural plans. Our basis is the mechanical, electrical, and plumbing. The MEP, that's how it's broken down in the professional construction industry. And we focus mainly on those facets of the tiny house. So if people aren't going to someone like you, how are they putting together the MEP? They're having friends that know how to do a little bit of plumbing or electrical, or like in Michelle's case, which is very wise, she's spending the money to have the peace of mind to hire professionals who are licensed and insured to come out and install her propane systems. Yeah, propane was one of the things that I wasn't going to sort of skimp on. Electrical, what I did was I did hire a non-licensed um, electrician, but then I hired a licensed electrician to come out and inspect what the non-licensed electrician had done before I put up the drywall. Was he willing yes. to do that? Yes. Yeah, actually. I mean, you know, it's it, for in my case, it was $100. So I, I couldn't afford in my budget to hire a licensed electrician to put right. in, do all the install. So I designed the system, um, and I had the licensed electrician look at the system, right, look at the overall sure. the, the intelligence of the system, and he kind of gave me the thumbs up. Um, but I did have it inspected by a licensed guy. So, so when it came to the important stuff, the framing, the electrical, and the propane, um, I hired either a licensed, a licensed contractor or I hired someone to come back out and inspect it. Hmm. So here's a quick question for you, Michelle. Tell me this. Is your chassis of your trailer frame grounded to your electrical system? Yes. Okay, great. Why is that important? That's a, a RVIA standard, an ANSI standard, and a National Electric Code standard that the trailer frame steel be grounded by a wire from the ground terminal in the main electrical box down to the trailer chassis. Why? And you should, to eliminate stray voltages, if for some reason that trailer chassis would become energized, sitting on rubber tires, sure, it would probably drain down through the steel jacks that are touching the earth, but what if those jacks are sitting on wood blocks? There's a lot of what-ifs that the National Electric Code, based on hundreds of engineers, have written this code, and it's really not for a homeowner or either for an electrical contractor to say, well, I don't think we need this. So how would a freight trailer frame get energized? Uh, an extension cord that had frayed, maybe some of the wiring inside of the house. Um, the chances are maybe one in a million. Do you want to see your son t 
touching your steel trailer hitch and shaking violently while he's being electrocuted. Could be interesting. Was he a bad I boy? know. <laughs> Get your video cameras ready, folks. <laughs> yeah. No, I'm yep. just asking the que- these questions because I they, they occur to me as something that I wouldn't ordinarily think about when right. trying to build a tiny house. I, I would imagine the emotional satisfaction I'm getting from planning it and designing it and the joy that I'm getting from interacting with people like Michelle and and seeing her headers, oh my God, <laughs> looking at them right now. Not really. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, going to meetups and, and getting just in, and going on Facebook and seeing other people's designs and things and... I in the in the small amount of time I've looked at tiny houses, I have not once run across anything that we're talking about right now. Yeah, yeah, we had many people come to the jamboree, um, um, including Steve from Tumbleweed, and said, "Where have you guys been? We don't we don't see you out there. How how can we didn't know you guys existed?" And other um, companies. <laughs> so you know, it's just. Our, our website is boring because it talks about doing things correctly. And part of the tiny house movement is because you can build it any way you want. Yeah. That's what's drawn me to the tiny house movement because it's not permitted. I've spent my lifetime taking out hundreds if not thousands of electrical permits and meeting thousands of times with electrical inspections on the job and had thousands of dollars taken out of my wallet by inspectors that said, oh, you know, I think today you're going to have to install this service a little bit differently than what you used to be doing. (laughs) And you just can't believe that that one phrase cost you five grand. Wow. I like the flexibility. The earth ships and the rammed earth houses are also great interest to us um, down the road once we have a community to build one in. Wow. So you talked about, you made reference to RVIA RVIA standards. Um, I know what they are, and I, I know there's a lot of differences between the residential building codes and the RVIA standards. Um, I took note of those. I had met with a tiny house builder when I was entertaining the idea of having one built for me. And we talked about the RVIA standards and some of the egress issues. Um, And so most of those, if not all, I hope, um, I've taken into account for my build. For the education, again, of our listeners, can you talk a little bit about the differences and talk about the RVIA standards and why they're lovely and why people also hate them? The sta- the standards, I think, why they're lovely, and let's clarify the word standards, which means those are suggested building methods. However, they're mandatory building methods for a tiny house or an RV builder to have the RVI sticker on their house. The codes are not flexible. It's up to the authority having jurisdiction on how those are going to be enforced. They will be enforced or your house won't receive a certificate of occupancy or your commercial property. Right. Uh, um, I think building to the RVIA code and their suggested building methods is a really good way to go. Can you meet those in every instance? Possibly not. When you look at the uh, international building code or any residential building codes, they talk about minimal room, minimum room sizes and exactly how stairways will be built, and that when you come out of the house, there will be a, 
a certain landing of a certain size, no more than this many inches below the threshold, or even with the threshold, those aren't flexible. Those are carved in stone, and you will not receive that inspection. So the flexibility of using the RVI guidelines really lets you build your tiny house the way you want it. Like, for the, instance, can you talk about the egress issues? I think if I had my girlfriend up in my loft and my wife came home, I'd want a way to get her out of there. There we go. So, you know, I think it's important to have a method to get out of your loft. They make some really nice um, rope ladder assemblies that mount on the inside of the house between a 16-on-inch stud bay right underneath the window. You open up the door, open up the window, you throw the ladder out, and you climb down to safety on this rope. That is that's one of the things that fascinates me the most. Out of all of the things we've talked about, that's one of the things that fascinates me the most is the lack of not only ventilation or window or light or air in the loft, but that their window is large enough to escape out of. Well, yeah, that's a lot of the windows in these tiny house lofts, you can't get out. Right. Oh, come, stop, stop. Those windows are cute. Sometimes you put a lot of work into those stained glass pieces, and damn it, they're going to stay there. We don't need fresh air. What's wrong with you guys? Is this how you're going to treat me? Okay. Uh, yeah, so what's the craziest thing um, that you've ever seen? Um, I know you remember, you're, you're in the group, um, the Facebook group, Tiny House People. I see you there, and of course, you and I have corresponded pretty, pretty often, but... What's yeah. the craziest thing you've seen, and did you actually approach them either privately or publicly and, and say... And what happened? What the hell are you doing? Like, what are you thinking? What's the craziest thing you've actually addressed with someone? Um, and how did they respond? Um, it varies how they respond. One of the things that in the professional world that I learned from the architects and interior designers is that we praise in public and we criticize in private. So I have sent those emails to uh, professional builders and after I've either personally seen their um, fire hazards or life safety hazards and I've confronted them, most of the time their understanding of the situation that they created as far as a life safety issue. Others uh, defended their position, whereas they said if their propane tank wasn't inside, they said, I never have put a propane tank inside one of my houses. But inside means a lot of things. If it's in a sealed up enclosure on the tongue of your trailer, it's still inside. So they were kind of defensive. Um, I've come across some, occasionally I'll do a service call on a tiny house because something's not working and the builder uh, made an error. And I've seen some pretty crazy stuff. I'm not going to say the particular items I've seen because some people would know what they were. Well, well, hang on a second. That's where, the sure. ju that's where the juice is. So you can't say anything about the details without giving away names or locations or... Well, it's people that have probably made a big deal about a thing that was just massively messed up. Is that... I mean, I'm guessing... That's what I'm, I'm saying is that it was just so, it had to do with improper wire size, no ground fault protection, 
um, electrical conductors <laughs> inside of a metal shower, um, wow. a product that was installed that wasn't UL listed. Wow. This was all just on one circuit in one tiny house. Wow. All of that was on one circuit. Wow. All of this that I'm describing was just one situation in one tiny house. Wow. That That's builder cool. has uh, assured me that he's changed his building methods. Um, and I don't have any reason to suspect that he has not changed his building methods. So you're, you're saying that this was in a tiny house of a professional builder who built this thing, not just an enthusiast? Correct. This person has built multiple units and transferred them across state lines. Woo! Wow. Gary, do you think Crazy. eventually the way that there's the RV standards, and, and obviously a tiny house is different in the way that they're being built, do you think eventually there will be those standards too? Um, it's a possibility there are groups in the nation that are working towards uh, the, I think it's the tiny National Tiny House Association. Um, I don't follow that as much as I do. I have associates that are uh, connected to that as state representatives, and I keep up to speed on that to some degree. I think when we use the word professional tiny house builder, I think we're using that phrase loosely mm -hmm. because there is no certification for the builders. I really think there should be a certification for the builders if this movement continues because we haven't had the major accident on the highway yet. Yes, we've seen pictures of tiny houses on the side of the road with their axles failing right. because of the weight, right. but nothing's been flung off or caused a death to the best of my knowledge on the highways. And once you get the National Traffic Highway Safety Administration involved, which oversees how trailers are built, then we could see a rearrangement on how these uh, throws are assembled by non-professionals. How do you, what, what's your explanation for why we haven't seen something like that? Those because they're so overbuilt. They're anchored to the trailer twice as much as they need to be. Huh. Or in my case, 82 times. I have 82. <laughs> yes. 82 three-eighths by two-and-a-half-inch bolts wow. um, attaching the subfloor to the trailer. Wow. Um, wow. It, was, it was a crazy two-and-a-half days of drilling. It was kind of crazy. No, mine is, again, mine is really admittedly. So um, so one last question for you here, Gary. Um oh, yeah. So, what is the one piece of advice you have for someone out there planning their tiny house build? If they could only pick one piece of, one thing that they absolutely have to do, what would it be? If you re really don't know what you're doing and you see any doubt in your friends or even a professional giving you advice, consult another professional or seek professional advice if it was one of your friends. Really great. And then... Um, for the people who won't go to the show notes and look at the stuff, the rich stuff that we'll have there, why don't you give your website and uh, maybe a telephone number people can call you at? Um, my website is tinyhousesystems.biz. And my email address, send us a contact. Fill out, go to the contact us, fill out that little form. Just put your name and write what you want to tell me and your email address, and I'll send you a message back. My, my email address is gary at tinyhousesystems.biz. Great. Perfect. Awesome. Awesome. 
and I'll be happy to talk with somebody after they send me their phone number. All right, cool. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being a great guest and really making this kind of technical <laughs> stuff and even the math interesting. Yeah. That, that was awesome. Yeah. Well, it's been a real pleasure talking with you folks, too. And like my mama said, you're just stupid for us. Don't let anyone tell you any different. <laughs> thank you. Thanks, Hey, good talking with you guys. Enjoy the rest of your podcast. Thank you for listening to Tiny House Podcast. To find us online, go to tinyhousepodcast.com, where you will also find our show notes, if you remember to put them there. Our logo was designed by the amazing Carolyn Maine. Our website is hosted by the gang at Sightcast. Our theme music is by Oma Studio. Please go to iTunes and give us a five-star rating, or whatever. You tiny house-loving bastard. Tiny House Podcast is probably made in Portland, Oregon. <laughs>